Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you a little bit about our theme for this quarter, growing and protecting your portfolio. We're excited about various topics centered around this, but it really comes down to three concepts that will help you grow and protect your portfolio. You can find a PDF on our website about this. Go to wiserinvestor.com, scroll down to the bottom, enter your email address, and you'll get the PDF titled Three Ways to Grow and Protect Your Portfolio. Thanks for listening. Welcome to a Wiser Retirement Podcast, where we cover financial topics such as financial planning, tax planning, portfolio management, insurance, and estate planning, so you too can have a wiser retirement. I'm your host, Casey Smith, guiding you to financial success. Today is my co-host, Brad Lyons. Hey, Brad. Hi, Casey. So uh, today's podcast is covering um, selecting ETFs to construct your portfolio, and this is something that uh, we have done for uh, many years. Um, in fact, this firm back in the late 80s when it started, uh, Wiser Wealth Management was more of a stock picking firm. It was uh, all the way up until 2007 when I uh, acquired the company. Uh, and we transitioned out of stock picking uh, into uh, ETFs, which at the time were fairly new. Uh, I started building ETF models in my own portfolios in 2004. So I was a fairly early adapter to um, uh, to the ETF concept. Uh, and to me, it was very plain that ETFs were the future. Um, it's going to be less to deal with uh, as far as active management. Uh, it was a great passive vehicle. Now, since then, active managers are moving into the ETF world as well. So um, ETFs are kind of like saying I own a mutual fund. <laughs> it could mean a lot of things, uh, same way with ETFs. I've, I've always thought they should call them ETPs, um, exchange traded products, because there's so many different types. You know, and I believe that they do that uh, in Europe. They're more referred to as ETPs. You know, just by using the word fund, I think it can confuse uh, investors. And I think that's probably some of the ones, the adoption though that they wanted to use is trying to get people to accept it. But you know you're right. It should be. It's more of a product. It's an investment product. Because you have you have ETFs, but then you also have ETNs, uh, which are exchange traded notes. So it's important to remember that if you build something with an ETN, a lot of times commodities are in ETNs. Uh, if the company who created it or sponsors it, usually it's a bank, goes out of business, then you're going to lose all your money more than likely. That's what happened with Lehman Brothers. So typically we don't build or we don't build any portfolios with ETNs here. Uh, then under ETFs and exchange traded fund, there's different types. There's 1933 act based ETFs and there's 1940 act based ETFs. So you, you have to be careful that you understand, do you actually own something, right? Do you actually own the underlying assets? Um, and so as, as long as you own the underlying assets, even if the ETF were to go out of business, um, you're still going to get either um, very efficient liquidation or you're going to get uh, a, <laughs> tons of individual <laughs> stocks deposited into your into your account. Um, so th those are those are important things to, to consider as you're as you're as you're screening for um, uh, ETFs to, to construct a portfolio with. But more importantly, the most important thing I feel like is, is start with a plan. And comprehensive financial planning covers a lot of things, but 
part of that is asset allocation and understanding um, how much risk you need to be taking inside your portfolio. Uh, and, and you have here on your list, uh, start, number one, start with the investment objective and the time frame of your investment portfolio. And the only way you're going to know that is if you've done some basic planning. Well, that's right. It's, it's like planning a trip almost. You need to know where you're going and what you're going to be doing when, once you get there. So you need to know what the objective is for your investment portfolio. What do you want it to do for you? And then when do you want that to happen? And once you can answer those two questions, you can begin the process of determining what the rest of your asset allocation is, how long it's going to be invested, and then how you fill those asset allocations with investments in order to achieve your the objective, the return. So, um, think about, let's think about time frame. We we we've brought this up for three um, podcasts in a row. This is number three, I think. But we talk about long term investing. What does that really mean? Um, if you're trying to build a portfolio for um, six months, um, there's always going to be too much risk. You want to avoid. That's right. Six you, month you, investments. You want to avoid the, the the risk of the investment not performing as expected at the time, the precise time, in fact, that the portfolio is there to perform its primary purpose, and that is to achieve the objective. So short-term portfolios need to be very limited in their investment uh, selections. Yeah, specifically to equities, uh, although we're in a time period right now that even bonds could surprise you to the downside um, if, if you're not careful with, with how you choose uh, the bond fund itself. Yes, and, and the speaking of the, the time frame, the time frame allows you to uh, make sure that the port investment itself and the portfolio as constructed has the time to achieve its, the, its objective, knowing that there's going to be some variations in prices, some fluctuations in market valuations along the way. So, there's many different profiles we could take in this conversation. Um, we could take a uh, person about to enter into retirement. Uh, that time frame should be 30 plus years, right? We could take someone who um, is building a, has a 401k and has all these different investment options. They're 35 years old. Um, their time span could be 60 years, right? Right. So <laughs> those it, are- It's just different phases. Correct. That, that time frame. And how much risk you're willing to you're willing to take. If you're a 35 year old person and you've got that amount of time span, your mix ought to be 90 stock, 10 percent bonds. Like you, and you Easily. shouldn't even look at this stuff. But maybe once a year, honestly. Easily should be very overweighted towards equities to give you that opportunity for long term growth. Right. Um, and then if you're approaching retirement. You, you have to kind of start coming back off the risk scale toward this maybe uh, 60 40 portfolio, which gets a lot of bad press, uh, but it's still the most efficient portfolio you can build the 60 stock, 40 bonds. Well, what's interesting when you talk in you know percentages, it's simple and easy to understand. But when you talk in the magnitude or the size of the portfolio, sure, a 35 year old may be investing 90% of their investment assets into the equity markets and or in risk assets and at 65 that same person may be only investing 60 percent of their portfolio in in risk assets or equities but the magnitude of the portfolio over those 30 years has grown tremendously so that 60 percent allocation at retirement 
still may be the largest allocation of equities towards right. equities that you may have ever have had. True. And dollar wise, yeah. Yeah. All right. So we start with investment objective and time frame. So let, let's say our investment objective is um, growth. We want to continue to grow wealth. Um, and then we want, let's say we want to, um, uh, or step two is to determine a rate of return uh, over that time frame. I think this is where people are going to get lost because, well, I want the highest rate of return. Well, <laughs> right? that, that can be, you can try that. <laughs> I want the it highest rate means- of return possible. But you always need to keep in mind as an investor and in constructing a portfolio that the risk return reward ratio exists and it will always exist. If you want that higher return, you have to be willing to try and take more risk. So again, you know, for a higher risk taker, when we talk about higher risk taker in this conversation, we're not talking about buying all Tesla stock or Bitcoin we're just talking about the S and P 500, which really is probably more moderately risk compared to um, what people talk about today. Right. The meme it, stocks it, and it's simply the risk like of the that. market itself. Correct. Yes. So, so yeah, it's true. So, 100% risk is 100% of what you see on TV, the Dow Jones or S and P 500, more mm-hmm. uh, more appropriately. So, if if you have an all equity portfolio, you're trying to get the maximum rate of return. That's right. If you have anything else other than that, then you're trying to get the maximum rate of return for a given amount of risk. Right. Right. So in a 60, 40 portfolio, you should, if you look at the S and P 500, if it's returned 10%, you should be 60% of, you should be, you should be at 6%, right? Right. That's a, that's, that's a good, that's th- a good th- benchmark. Right. Uh, and then hopefully bonds have, boosted you up to be a little higher than that, or they something in the portfolio like real estate or small cap stocks could be underperforming, which may bring you down on that on, on a, on a calendar year, but not necessarily for, for your life of investing. Right. So you, you have to adjust for a, a diversified portfolio is never going to move all together. Is well, the idea. Well, that is the idea. <laughs> yeah. What's called un- that way. <laughs> uncorrelated returns. And the idea being that it's smoothing out your returns, your annualized returns or period returns yep. a little bit, because some are doing better than others at any given time. And that's the whole idea of diversification. So when you're doing financial planning, we're never going to plan on anyone having an 8% rate of return for the rest of their life. No, that would be unrealistic. So, so a good 60, 40 allocation is sitting in for planning purposes something around five and a half percent. Right. Right. So five and a half percent rate of return, the most we'd ever see is probably six and a half um, pre retirement. And that's because as we look at returns, we're looking at the long term past relative to the long term future. And if returns have been high in the past, then the expectation for the future tends to be a little lower. If returns have been low in the past, returns for the future expectations are a little higher. So I, I see that a lot with individual investors when they come in, and a lot of them will have their own spreadsheets they built focused on oh, the future. Yeah. The spreadsheet and, investor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's like 8%, 10 I saw one at 12.5% rate of return. Um, that's like planning a road trip and going, well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure my truck runs out of gas it says here 500 miles. So I'm going to go f- plan out 500 miles to the next gas station. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> does that, right? He, right. He, he starts getting empty, gets below empty. You're freaking out. 
<laughs> and no stops in between. <laughs> no stops in between. So yeah, it's um, uh, you know, it, it, you you want to plan on a number that's less than what your expectations are for the portfolio. It's okay right. to have a well, I don't think it's okay to have a twelve percent expectation on your portfolio, but it's okay to have an eight nine percent expectation. But you're planning for five and a half. Yes. All right. Yeah. So we've got um, our objective, uh, which is long term investing. We're looking at twenty plus years. Uh, rate of return, we need something around five and a half uh, percent to meet our financial objectives. Um, and then now we have to go pick asset classes to invest in. And there are the big three, stocks, bonds, and cash. Yep. Those are the big three asset classes that we all have available to in the public markets to invest our money, try and achieve the required rate of return over the time period that we need to achieve it. Stocks, bonds, and cash. Now, stocks can come in many forms and flavors, right? Yep. U.S. Right. stocks, international stocks, large company stocks, small company stocks. So you have a variety of different asset classes to choose from, and all of them have different expectations for the returns going forward. We can talk a little bit about that coming up. So I think that's probably hardest for people. Um, I think it's safe to say that if you want to build your portfolio uh, by default, you know, more toward large cap, that that's probably better. Uh, back, back in my aviation days, when I was a new first officer, I flew with a lot of senior captains. They're, you know, edging toward retirement and they knew that I was on the uh, retirement insurance committee for the airline. <laughs> and I remember flying this one guy. I remember exactly where we were too. It's funny how you remember things like just pinpoint, right? But we're we're just you know it's a night flight. We're babysitting the airplane, thirty thousand feet. I think we're coming out of Dallas, headed back to Atlanta, and um, it was you know airline airline work is like a lot like watching uh, paint dry. At least for the pilots, the flight attendants these days are breaking up fights, but the pilots, you know, it's just like watching paint dry. And uh, so you're just sitting there, and he he looks at me and he goes. I'm a little behind and saving for retirement. <laughs> Just out of the blue. And I was like, okay. Um, well, you know, you pick up extra trips. You, you know, you maxing out the 401k plan. Oh, yeah, I'm maxing it out. He goes, I just decided to put everything in small cap stocks. So you liquidate his entire portfolio into small cap stocks because on the chart, they had the highest rate of return. But they also have the highest risk and the most volatile outside of emerging markets inside most 401k plans. And I immediately said, well, <laughs> unfortunately, you can't all you can't solve for retirement by taking on more risk necessarily. Um, you, you, you probably need to be looking at other things past age 65 in, in the airline business. We have a retirement um, uh, mandatory retirement at age 65 right now. They could solve the pilot shortage if they increase that a few years. Um, but anyway, so, you, you know, asset allocation is very important. Um, and so you want to, you probably, you know, if you're doing this on your own, you want to, you want to tilt more toward large cap. Um, and it's been good to you for the last 10 years, for sure. That's you, true. Probably even the last 30 years, really. Well, people do gravitate towards larger cap stocks because the companies are more established. They're more well-known. You hear about them in the news. Yeah. You may, you may utilize some of the products that they, that they produce. Okay. So don't, don't go try to hit a home run with your portfolio. Because no. you looked at a chart and you saw that emerging markets was the highest performer in the last the last year, and you're adding more to the asset class. Right. 
So it, it's you have to remember that each. This is how I look at it. Each asset class has a historical rate of return. It also has a historical standard deviation, and that's how we measure risk. That's how we measure risk. It's the it's the, it's the deviation of the possible returns, you know, w- within a within a range. So, um, yeah. So we're looking at stocks for growth in the portfolio, and in that you can choose from U.S. companies, international companies, large companies, which we're talking about, and smaller companies like the the airline pilot that you. Yeah, you know, chose so. So these are some of the asset classes. Then we can look at bonds as well. Another asset class, part of the big three. Bonds perform a, a very specific role in, in portfolios in that it mitigates the risk of investing in equities because they have a more certainty return. They have stated interest rates on the interest that they pay on the bond, so that should be the expected return. So you should get some income, and you mitigate the risk of the portfolio at the same time. So stocks for equities, bonds for safety. Another way you can look at that too is, is um, kind of like a bucket system because really bonds aren't going to do much for you. But the problem is most of us can't stomach an all stock portfolio, nor should you honestly, No, Um, especially as you're approaching retirement, you got to have about two years worth of cash uh, set aside either within the portfolio or with, you know, between your savings account and the portfolio that allows the market just completely tank and you can go two years without having to, um, without having to, uh, liquidate any type of security. Right. In addition to that being debt free, that, that reduces anxiety. And we see that I, I don't have to fight many people on that, but there's been a few people over the last year or so, a few clients that we've had, I've had to have serious conversations like, no, we want to pay off the mortgage. And yes, there's a, there's a, higher cost to you for paying off the mortgage, maybe even through an IRA. Um, but the bottom line is in times of times of uncertainty, um, your anxiety level, your health is so much better being debt free. And, and walking people through that process is, uh, can be entertaining at times. Uh, but once we, once we finish it, um, I've, Nine times out of ten, I end up getting an email that says, "Thanks for telling me to do that because this COVID crash is driving me crazy." But hey, I don't have any debt; I can live on my utilities if I had to, and it's never that bad. It's never as bad as we make it out to be. No, <laughs> <laughs> but but having having that uh, debt eliminated allows you, and that's why you have cash as part of your portfolio. It protects your portfolio, so you want to protect your portfolio from from crashes, from sudden needs and of capital for some reason. Um, we typically, we think Dave Ramsey calls it the emergency fund, right? We've kind of taken that concept and just kind of blown it up into portfolio management as well. And, and again, this is for, this is for, uh, people going into retirement prior to retirement. You just need to have an emergency fund so that you never have to go into that, but you wouldn't have cash in your portfolio necessarily pre-retirement. It's really just uh, post-retirement if you're withdrawing money from the accounts, yeah, and the cash is, is there because it provides you with that li- immediate liquidity, as it's called, in order to pay for your current needs right. without disturbing the investments in the portfolio, allowing them the time to perform their primary purpose, growth for stocks, stability and income for, for the bonds. And you, and you don't have to have actual cash. You can screen. Um, ETF.com has a great screener. Uh, whatever brokerage account you're using uh, probably has a good screener as well. But you can screen for short-term bond funds 
meaning like three months or less, U.S. Treasuries, three months or less, those would get you a little higher yield than actual cash. Most, if you're at Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, the cash doesn't actually pay you anything. In fact, they're using your cash to make to make money and keep the company profitable. So if, if you buy a uh, an ETF, you can use an ETF for that. Just screen for short term, less than three months. Sure. You know, otherwise cash uh, um, possibilities are, are very limited. You have bank deposits or money market funds. Right. Unless you go into these other types of cash equivalent vehicles that you're speaking of. And then when you get to the bond side of the portfolio, you would select um, bond funds based on what your outlook is for uh, bonds as a whole. So if you're in if you're in a rising interest rate environment, you might screen for more shorter term bonds, like something less than five years. Um, if you are more neutral, then you might be more uh, six to eight years of maturity on your bond funds. Um, and if you're, if you think rates are coming down, you'd be more long-term on your bond funds inside the portfolio. Um, we actually own short, intermediate and long. And what Brad does is you, you kind of pull the levers to decide where we want to be um, on the, on the maturity average maturity for the portfolio for you guys playing at home. Um, you might punt on this one and just buy the aggregate. You we know, own everything. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great investment. You know, recommendation there. Working with bonds in a changing interest rate environment is a very difficult thing. You're trying to not just predict the change in interest rates, but when they occur as well. You don't want to get to the party too early as right. interest rates go up and down, but you don't want to be there too late either. So it's it's a it's a tricky proposition investing in bonds in a changing interest rate environment. And then on the equity side, there's ways to make it really simple too. You can buy an all cap US ETF. Sure. Vanguard, State Street, uh, I think even BlackRock has one. Um, you can buy a, an ETF that represents large, mid, and small. Uh, and of course, it's tilted more toward large because it's market cap weighted. There's more large, bigger companies or giant companies, right? Uh-huh. Um, so you, you have that option to make the portfolio very simple. Uh, and then internationally, I mean, do you buy Russia? Do you buy Ukraine? Do you buy China? Like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't know. We don't buy, we don't buy emerging markets that way. Um, we don't think company specific. We just think asset class. And so you have, you have options there as well. You can buy, um, a fund that represents the entire world except for the U S so really, you can build an entire ETF portfolio with all cap US, all world X US, and then the bond aggregate, and then a short term cash fund if you needed it. Those and essentially, are, you know, cover the entire global universe yes. of, of publicly traded investments. Average cost would be probably around five basis points or 0.005%. You might get it down to three if you use Vanguard products. Um, and then most of those trade for free on almost any major platform right at this point. Um, so that that's an ETF portfolio. Actually, we just described our core. We have a core model here for, for assets, uh, for smaller accounts. And that's exactly how we build those core. Um, we just know when we just rebalance it. Uh, yeah, when you think so back you know, years ago, the ability to uh, invest internationally and globally and with complete diversification with a smaller portfolio was, was impossible. But now yeah, through yeah. ETF investing and the creation yeah. of ETFs and the adoption of ETFs, an individual with a few thousand dollars can have a globally diversified portfolio 
It's it's simply amazing. It it really is because there's so many firms in our industry that will only work with people of a certain asset class. I mean, certain certain amount of assets. So a million dollars or more, ten million dollars or more. I had a, we had a new client recently that uh, interviewed another firm first, and he said, "Well, you have less than two million dollars. I don't even know what to do with that." <laughs> <laughs> and I just kind of shake my head because, man, we've we're we've advanced so much with um, how who we can help because we can scale our firm to help someone just starting out or take on a client with twenty two million dollars in assets. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's the beautiful thing about exchange traded funds is they've really allowed um, firms like ours to be able to scale. Uh, now, there's still there's still firms our size out there that are um, picking individual stocks. They have 30 different model portfolios for no rhyme or reason. Um, and that that's that's a little dangerous, I feel like, um, because they can't get bigger. They can't they can't scale their practice, they're going to run out of capacity. And that's where you stop getting return phone calls and emails are slow to return, right? Yes. Th- th- those things like that will happen, but. Um, and you have a constantly changing economic environment out there. Yeah. So what worked in the past for your stock selection capability and your screens, as you referred to them earlier, yeah. may or may not work going forward as the economy changes, as we adapt new technologies. Right as companies come out with new products and new services, as consumers, we consume different products and services at different times. So yeah, that's a very difficult proposition in order to to find individual companies that you think are gonna do well, that you can utilize in a portfolio with, which you're, to achieve your objectives yep. at a specific risk level. So right. and, and then be that's able, asking a lot. And then be able to react. That's the hard part is if you have, even if you only had 200 families work in your firm, how do you react to each individual portfolio? You have to be able to scale and build that. And that's what we're able to do with ETS. We're able to build models. And then more importantly, we're able to build custom models, um, which ETFs allow you to do. You might have, we might have a client that has individual stock that we have to build around. We can build an, their own model and manage all that through the ETFs and the individual stock through technology which uh our, our trading platform that's correct uh, which is very easy to do we we're able to rebalance the entire firm every single client within what, about three hours a couple hours hour. yeah exactly so th- again this is uh for the for the do it yourself or the this is there, there's so many free tools out there now that you can build simple portfolios with um but what typically what we see people get wrong is they get off in the weeds in these little odd and end funds. You know, we, 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 you know, we'll see um, individual f- emerging market funds. Right. Uh, we see random, random ETFs um, that just don't have any rhyme or reason to really fit into the portfolio. Well, what people will tell us when they've done this is that they had a reason to buy it, but they don't maintain a reason to hold it. And they have no circumstance decided as to when they may sell it. So uh, shift gears a little bit. Uh, alternative asset classes. We haven't talked much about real estate. Real estate is fairly simple. You can buy a fund that is um, domestic focused or one that's internationally focused. Uh, there's only international ones, obviously. We prefer a mix. So about 75% here at home, 25% foreign. Uh, you can get that inside uh, REIT, R-E-E-T, or R-W-O, which is, I believe, a State Street um, right. product. Pro- 
You know, real estate uh, as an alternative asset class. Now, you've heard us talk, say the words here, publicly traded. Um, real estate can come in two forms as we're talking. It can be both in limited partnerships and, and other things that are not publicly traded. But through REITs, REIT investing, they can, you, you can buy into the publicly traded real estate market and get those non-correlated returns. Now, non-correlated means you have a different return pattern relative to stocks, bonds, and cash. Right. So you're using those in a portfolio to achieve whatever gain that there is possible, but also to de-risk the, the rate of return variables that come with uh, stock, bond, and cash investing. So this is just coming to my mind. We didn't really talk about this prior, but but you, you could do it this way. You could build an Excel spreadsheet. You could find a screen for an ETF that's all U.S., all cap. You could screen for a, all world except for the U.S., XUS. You could add a REIT fund. You can add um, an aggregate bond fund and a short-term bond fund if you needed. If you need that, go up and go back and look. You can go to ETF.com. In fact, here's the here's a little hack. <laughs> go to ETF.com forward slash and then the ticker. So you go to ETF.com forward slash like IVV or forward slash SPY, and it gives you all the profile of that ETF. Now you have to know which one you're looking at. There's also screens available if you don't know the tickers, but you you can go build this Excel spreadsheet um, with the different asset class that you want and inside your portfolio. Then on the next line to the right of each uh, fund or asset class, if you don't know the fund yet, you can put in the expected rate of return. So you can find that, um, you can find that through uh, J.P. Morgan has one. Is that public? Yes, can they you are. Google that. In fact, uh, well, what you're referring to is capital called, market assumptions. Capital market assumptions. You know, what is the assumption for a return for any individual asset class? Now, large firms, you know, can produce these. They often do, and they use them in their um, advice for their clients. Uh, they also make these available to the investing public. Uh, if you just go to J.P. Morgan, for example, and search for long-term capital market assumptions, they produce them every year. The idea is that, the, for example, in this case, J.P. Morgan, what they're trying to do is look at the past returns, look at history, look at the current economic environment, and then project out into the future over long terms, 10 to 15 years, on average, what each asset class should return given the assumptions that they've put into their to their calculations. So you have a long-term capital market assumption for large company stocks, a long-term mm-hmm. capital market assumption for small company stocks, for international stocks, for emerging market stocks, etc. And what goes along with that is what we've been talking about all along is their risk. So you have the expected return plus the risk of investing in that asset class. And the risk is up and down. Because right. the risk really means not you know like that you won't necessarily achieve it, but that you won't achieve the return that you're expecting. So the risk means there's a range of possible returns. Could be plus or minus X on any given level. Right. So that's what you referred to as earlier as standard deviation. So if you have a return expectation of simply 10 with a standard deviation of 10, that means the possible ranges of returns are zero, or 20. So somewhere right. in there is your expected rate of return. And over the long term of 20 to 
15 to 20 years, perhaps, you'd average 10 in this instance. So do they give you the, they give you the standard deviation of each asset class, right? That's correct. All right. So so basically on that on that spreadsheet, you've got, you know, large uh, or all cap foreign aggregate short term bonds, maybe real estate. You can write down the expected rate of return from that sheet and then the next cell over write down the standard deviation. That's right. So right, so you can extrapolate through all that to be able to determine what the expected risk range, the volatility of the portfolio or each asset class and how much you want to allocate to each asset class. To each one. So you'd have, you'd, you'd know approximately how much you want to invest in large caps, what the expected return is, and what the standard deviation is. Yep. Then below that, for example, on the Excel spreadsheet, small caps, how much you want to invest in that, the what the expected return mm-hmm. And what its standard deviation. You can go through that with all the different asset classes, and you can match your required rate of return given any level of risk that you want. And you simply adjust these weightings, the target weightings, at each level of asset class inclusion in your portfolio. So then the next step is to say, okay, I know I want X amount in large cap um, or all world, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, all cap US, all world, uh, or all world XUS. <laughs> There's so many choices. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then, and then your bonds and then your real estate. So then, um, at, at, at that point, you now are ready to start screening for ETFs. So you want to, and look what we've done here. I just want to look what yeah. we've done. We spent all this time talking about creating a portfolio, determining a subjective, determining how much return you need, what the risk is of that, what the different possible investment opportunity sets are. And now we're finally talking about, <laughs> about investments. The ETFs, yes, yes. Exactly. And yet most people want to do what? They, they want, want to start, jump. They want to jump right to jump it. right to the investments. Yes, they want to yeah. go right to the investments. It, it, it's kind of like uh, I'm building a house, and you just go a bunch. You buy a bunch of two by fours and some sheetrock <laughs> and some concrete, and you just run out there and go. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's going to be great. Um, yeah, you got to have a very true. You got to have a blueprint, uh, and that blueprint again starts with um, the financial planning process, and then from there it rolls into asset management. That's what uh, you know. It's probably ninety percent. I must. I'm a. I, I'm just, I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Ni- at least 90%, 90% of advisors don't even start with that process. Yet 90% of the value that a client receives comes from the advice. It comes from the planning. Right. Correct. comes from the planning. Because yeah. the planning is all about de-risking yep. the, the investing in, a, in the markets. It's just de-risking your retirement. Right. Okay, it's not about figuring out how much risk, it's how much, how little risk, how you can defer as much risk as possible through good planning and good advice. And planning is not just stocks and bonds. There's no. more, more. I've had to say this a lot lately, but there's more than one way to lose money. It's not just the stock market, right? It could be through, through property casualty. It could be through early death, not enough assets. Um, it's all about your managing your risk. Uh, could be, yeah, it could be improper estate planning, losing money to Uncle Sam through death taxes. There's there's a lot of ways um, you can lose money, not not just through stock market. That's where again planning comes in. Um, okay, so now we get to the fun part. We know that let's say we want to have thirty percent of our portfolio in all cap US. So we know this. So we're going to go to our screener. I'm going to use ETF.com. Uh, as an example, good people great, put on great, great, uh, 
conferences every year or used to. <laughs> um, well, there's so many tools available for individual investors now, but you can go to and for professional investors as well. Exactly. You could also go to morningstar.com. Um, you can sign up. I think it's like 15 bucks a month, something like that for the premium. Um, there's, there's Zach's now Zach's.com. I think they're a subscription service as well. Right. Um, and, and then there's Yahoo finance. I think they even have, they have free tools on there as well. So pick your tool that, that, um, you understand how to use, and then you're going to start, you're going to search. So you're going to, there's going to be thousands of ETFs available, but you're going to start searching, um, by your asset class size. That's right. So, and, I, and searching is in the industry is called due diligence. And if you really want to get wonky, it's due dilly. <laughs> Never heard that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. So if, if we, um, searching by large cap, uh, or all cap, um, so that's one screen. And then there's probably going to be some other screens that you're going to need to apply, uh, as well. Um, the bottom line is, you know, if you're going to be passive with it, so you are just going to buy something like I just described as like an all cap us, then I, you know, I, I know that I'm just going to go right to the Vanguard product. Cause I think they're the best at doing that. Um, state street has an equally good product. Uh, so it kind of depends on where you're buying it, I guess. But, but how would anybody else know that? I mean, they, they wouldn't, if you knew nothing about this, you wouldn't know to, to stick to that, uh, to, to the, you know, the, the people who are the best at doing that. So you start with the asset class. Um, there's some other things that you, you probably want to look at. Um, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, Invesco, um, name some other prominent ones we'd actually do business well, with. First Trust Portfolios comes to mind. Wisdom Tree comes to mind. There's a number of... Uh, uh, reputable, strong financial companies out there that are sponsoring different ETFs. And what they'll do is many of them that they uh, uh, specialize, I'll say, if I could use that word, in a certain brand of type of ETF. Right. Factor ETFs, broad-based ETFs. Um, you, know, I, you know, some of them will start getting into uh, active ETFs, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But they have their own you know, as they're trying to carve out a niche in the financial services industry, they're trying to get make a name brand for themselves. So you, once you look for them as an investor, you want those with a, with a good reputation. You want those that are, are very large uh, and they have good financial strength in order to back their, their products and services. Yeah, if you're going with a new, newly launched ETF, I'd, I would consider doing that at a larger company, but not, you know, if Northwest Mutual came in with an ETF, I'd be like, no, we're not, we're not buying, we're not <laughs> right. buying that ETF. Right. Um, so you're looking so, both quantitatively and qualitatively at the at the ETF itself. So qualitatively, as we're talking now, you're looking at the company and the sponsor, their reputation, their financial strength, their ability to deliver the product. You know, through good times and bad. Okay. Then, in a quantitative sense, you're looking at things that are much more specific that you can quantify, and then you can compare apples to apples one ETF to another. So you're looking at the index methodology, you're mm -hmm. looking at the size of the ETF, looking at the cost, which we've talked about, the trade volume, the daily trade volume, how liquid yeah. is it? Looking at the spreads and the premiums and the discounts. And we can go, these are all factors that you can quantify and then you can wait if you really wanted to as to what those that are most important. I think a lot of people also look at what the holdings at ETF are, uh -huh. and that's important. Take a glance at the top 10 holdings, it gives you an idea of how it's made up. But more importantly, you need to look at the description of the ETF and understand 
uh, the index methodology. How did the stocks get into the ETF? That's very important. And I think some, that's something that people miss because you might see Apple as a core holding now, but then next quarter it might be gone because of some screen that the ETF has, right? Then that's more of an active uh, strategy with an ETF, but it but it's still important to, that you understand okay, I'm buying a more passive ETF. It's going to represent the S&P 500 and it's going to have 4% turnover or I'm investing in a quality screen and every single quarter it's going to reset the playing deck, right? Um, so it's, it's important to understand uh, what the objective of the of the fund is because there's not, typically there's not fund managers. There, there are some active ETFs out there that have fund managers, but for the most part, it's an active index. It's an index that resets itself quarterly, semi-annually, or annually. Um, so it's important to understand that. Um, the, obviously, you, we mentioned sponsored reputation, f- uh, financial strength, size. Uh, it doesn't have at least $100 million in assets. I'd say if you're investing on your own, I wouldn't mess with it because you don't want to have to deal with a shutdown of a fund. And if it has less than $100 million in assets, I don't know that that fund is profitable for uh, the company who's created it. Well, if it has less than $100 million, it also still has seed money in it, which means that's one investor who's probably put in. And it could be the <laughs> could sponsor be. itself. Yeah. Okay. So that the free flow of, of that is a large majority is being held away from the market as they're trying to create you know, a marketplace for it of buyers and sellers. Um, the thing is cost of the fund. So, yeah, I mean, if an ETF costs me a quarter of a percent, I think that's outrageous and expensive. But that's because our average portfolio at our firm is five basis points or 0.005 of a percent. So if I'm going to put in a fund that costs me a half a percent or 0.75% or a Bitcoin ETF that costs me nearly 2%, um, it's got to be a really good reason why that's in my portfolio. So so the, usually the highest we see or we go is, is maybe 0.15, which is 15, it's called 15 basis points, uh, or 0.15 of a percent. Um, but, but your S and P, your large cap funds ought to be below, uh, 10, 10 bips. Yeah. Cost is the easy one. All things elsewise being equal cost is a decision, is a decision point. Absolutely. And we just showed you in a prior podcast that cost has a lot to do with performance. So the higher your cost, the more there's a performance drag on the portfolio. So that means the, the manager has to be able to overcome that. And in this case, there is no manager. It's just an index, right? Right. So, so you have to you have to justify the higher fee, uh, which is the fees today should be almost zero um, based based on this. Uh, ETF.com can also show you trading volume. So you for larger investors, you want to make sure that when you place your trade, there's enough sellers on the other side to meet your trade. That's right. And, trade and, volume is is an indication of the liquidity of the marketplace. You know, how easily you can convert that ETF either to cash or to, well, I guess to convert to cash until you can buy another one and what the liquidity of that is as well. So you want a high trade volume with your ETFs. The, the liquidity is important too. That kind of goes with the with the trade volume. But um, a good rule of thumb is just trade between like 1130 and uh, one thirty. If you can trade in that 1130 to 130 range, maybe 230 might be okay. Foreign stocks better off early in the morning. And then, you know, when because when the market opens at 930, it doesn't fully open. It opens between 930 and 10. So there's securities that aren't traded because they don't open until 10, 10 a.m. 
So if you start trying uh, trading an ETF and let's say foreign markets are closed um, and not all the US market is fully open, then the authorized participant, the person who kind of makes the all the gears work in the background for the ETF, they're, they, they have their own inventory that they're gonna have to use, right? But they're taking some uh, risk. And so the, 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 the uh, spread of the ETF could, be, could get higher during that time period, or it's gonna just be slow to trade. Don't do a market order, do a limit order. So limit, you can do a limited market. <laughs> we have other tools we can use to make sure we're getting close to the net asset value. For people at home, you don't, don't necessarily have that. But even if you did a limit order at the current market price, that's gonna be more protection for you than just putting in a market order for an ETF. That, that's very dangerous. I, I know uh, firms that have billions of dollars in assets and their trading department still somehow manages to use market orders. Uh, and you don't want to do that. Well, market orders can lead to increasing the cost of managing your portfolio because as a market order, you're not going to get the, necessarily the best execution. You may get something less than the best execution. So if you're selling it, you're not getting as much as it's valued at. If you're right. buying it at a market and you're not getting the best price, you're paying more than it's worth. Right. So that spread can be translate into true cost of managing your portfolio. Which is another reason why we stick to larger, well-known very liquid companies because they have the ability to have a very tight spread, the bid and the ask. So if you go buy Coca-Cola stock, you have a bid, you have an ask. It's been that way since the beginning of time. ETFs are like individual stocks. They just hold bunches of other companies inside it. So therefore you have a bid and you have an ask. And on certain products that could be five, six cents apart. Oh, easily. So easily. It, that's a premium that you're paying to get into the fund. and You don't even realize it. So you, you want it's a those... hidden cost of portfolio management. Correct. That's right. And so no one height... really measures that. No. No one no, really it, measures that. It can be. It's called the T standard, but it can be measured, but it's fairly fairly uh, uh, difficult to do so and sophisticated. Now, what we're looking at is the liquidity and the spreads here. Okay. How, li how easily can you convert this to something else? And what's the spread on that? And what's right. it going to cost you to do so? Um this is goes to the different levels of liquidity that are available inside an ETF. There's a liquidity in the marketplace. Then there's a liquidity underneath the marketplace. And that's relative to all the securities that are held inside the ETF and how liquid those are. And if ever the spread gets too wide, it's called your you know, the, the cost, which is your NAV or your INAV. If the spread gets too wide, market makers and authorized participants jump into the market would create more ETFs in high demand period. Yep. Take more, you know, take them in and you know uncreate them or deconstruct them in times of greater supply. Well, there's so, a uh, there's an arbitrage to make money on that. That's right, and if large the, players in the marketplace can do that. If the um, ETF becomes, uh, you know, if it trades at a at a discount, they could buy up ETFs on the market and then break up the wrapper. Right. Right. And sell off and, the individual off securities. The securities that make money. It's That's amazing right. that how fast that can happen. Well, with computerized trading today, <laughs> that, that does yeah, happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that, again, it's hard to measure, but I know that we add value to our own clients being able to trade the way we trade versus um, how a traditional person would, would do it with a market order. And, and, and I don't know what number to put on that. Uh, it's probably five to 10 basis points a year, if I had to guess. 
that's that's recouped because we don't trade a whole lot. We're not day traders. We're not weekly or monthly traders for that matter. Um, we're um, entrepreneurial traders. Maybe. Opportunistic. That's right. <laughs> uh, but when it happens, we can we can do it much more efficient. In fact, we've had periods where we've able to basically swap ETFs and it, it never went even went into the market. Um, so th there's there's different different ways you can do it when you have large assets. But for those again, uh, I, you know, we want our podcast to help everybody. But for a do-it-yourselfer, um, look for again, look for ETFs that are from reputable companies, um, have an, are big enough, over hundred million dollars in assets, uh, uh, have the right fee structure uh, of of what you're looking for. If it's a more active strategy, it's going to be a higher fee. If it's a passive strategy, you're just replicating the S and P 500. You want that as cheap as possible, right? Uh, avoid trading fees at all costs. Um, look for free trades, uh, and then sometimes. Uh, those free trades though, they can make money on the spread. So when you trade, do a limit order uh, at the market price or maybe a penny above market price um, to help to help protect your, your trade. The risk there is if you put a large order in and somebody was on the other side. So I, I put a large order in for 100 shares and Brad's selling me or selling 50 shares to the market. It can match us up on the 50. We're at the same price at market. But then what if there wasn't enough liquidity and the next 50 shares I needed to buy came from somebody else, but but their price was higher. It's just going to go grab that next price. That's right. And that's what you want to prevent. You don't want to be climbing the ladder just to execute a trade under a market order. You want to limit to say that, okay, I'm willing to buy at this price. And you may have to adjust that limit after you place the initial trade, and that's fine. But you want to make sure you get the price that you want, not the price that the market is giving you because there's a lack of liquidity in the fund. That's a great example of liquidity and size. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then other screeners or other screens that you would have, um, again, uh, you know, don't just search on a rate of return. You're looking for best fit. You already know what the rate of return is because you figured that out with long-term capital market assumptions. You're just trying to find an ETF that, that best represents that asset class that you're looking for. So it's 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 not picking an ETF because it has great performance. It's picking the asset class that you want to be in, and then finding the ETF to then attach to the to the portfolio. That that's how you properly um, construct a an ETF portfolio. Correct. Um, okay, and then um, you know th then there's other ways you can do this. You take the same concept we just talked about, uh, and if you want to invest in technology, financials, energy, there's sector ETFs for all these things that you can work into a portfolio. Just understand what the methodology is behind whatever that whatever fund you're using. Go and go and read it. Uh, in ETF.com, it'll tell you, you know, this fund follows the S&P 500 index. Then, it'll, you know, so it says S&P 500 index. Google S&P 500 index <laughs> methodology. And then all this information will come up on the S&P 500 index methodology. Now, you, everyone probably knows what that is. Uh, but do you know what um, the a quality screen is? So whoever is, the, I can't remember, qual, who the, uh, uh, who, who the index. Uh, MSCI. All right. So MSCI quality index. Uh -huh. So you Google MSCI quality index methodology. And then you would get reports that are centered around that. So now you fully understand how that ETF is built. And the, this is a great example of, of many sponsors will all have quality factor funds. Okay. But 
the, what they consider quality, each one gets to determine themselves. On the S&P 500, it is what it is. Anybody who is offering an S&P 500 fund is offering the same fund. <laughs> same fund. It just comes in a different wrapper. Right. Okay. On a quality factor fund, each definition of, of quality is different given each different sponsor. So, so S&P, all quality is not the same. So you really yeah. have to do th- go through these same screens on the factor funds even more so you know, than, than the large brand uh, uh, indexes Passive that we refer indexes. to all, all the time. Yeah. 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 That's very true. Um, same for technology. So you could have a technology screen that'd be totally different all across different platforms. They do it different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are more efficient than others. ETF.com has a best fit index. So they kind of pick, okay, this is the standard for this sector. And then they'll give you, they'll rank it A, B or C for best fit. Right. Um, uh, as far as, um, uh, and it's okay if it doesn't fit theirs, but if, if what but most importantly does it fit you? <laughs> is it what you are? Is it what you are trying to screen for? Right. Is it what you were expecting? Correct. Yes. Correct. So. And then there are cases where they're the exact same indexes. There's REIT, R-E-T, and R-W-O. They are like brother, sister, identical twins almost. Difference is the fee, right? Sure. <laughs> so you go with the cheaper one. Yes. Uh, fidelity. That's what we said. All things being equal. Cost yeah. is a determining factor. Uh, Fidelity and um, VGT, Vanguard Technology Fund, those are very similar. So you pick what's best for you. It might be depending on the platform that you're on, that you're trading. One's free, one's not. Um, but th- those are those are just different examples. Um, again, you know, we talk about the benefits of ETFs all the time. I don't know if we need to get into super detail on that, but uh, the reason why you're using ETFs in your brokerage account is they're more tax efficient. Yeah, I think I saw an interesting factor. In 2020, only 4.5% of all the index funds paid out a capital gain, whereas 48% of all the active funds, equity funds, paid out a capital gain. So on a capital gain, you're simply paying capital gains taxes, if, if, you know, if that's the case, on something that you know occurred in a portfolio that you may or may not have been invested in when that event occurred because they're accumulated throughout the year and then often paid out at the end of the year. So if a capital gain was incurred in January, February, or March, and you became an investor in April, even though you held it at the end of the year, you never actually were in that. Or even worse. Or Or you missed in December. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, December. Or even worse, where you have a negative rate of return, but still have a capital gain. That's true. (laughs) That is a worst. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not a good management uh, uh, strategy there, but you know, you could have had that they liquidated positions early in the year, and then the rest of the year was a dud year. And yeah. um, ETFs, typically, you should be able to avoid that. You're not guaranteed, but no, because they said four and a half for the funds did yeah, pay out of capital gains. Correct. You know, um, I even think some of uh, bond funds in the last year did the same thing. Uh, had capital gains ETF bond funds had right. capital gains pass pass through. Uh, okay, Brad, we could talk about this forever. This is uh, one of our longer podcasts, so hopefully, everyone. Um, was able to derive a lot of information out of this uh, and how we construct ETF portfolios. This is something that um, I feel like I was just born doing. Uh, we we started building ETF portfolios before there was any, any software to do it with. I remember a guy, Kyle Waller, uh, worked with me for a couple of years uh, as a foreign missionary in Morocco now, but he, uh, he and I had to build everything out on spreadsheets 
um, Excel spreadsheets because Morningstar, nobody tracked ETFs. It was crazy back then, um, but we did it. And then technology came along now where there's tons of things to use, um, free tools, paid for tools like what we have uh, in-house. Uh, so it, it's it's really uh, it's really advanced, um, and I just think that if you still have mutual funds in your portfolio, or if you have uh, if you're at a firm that has mutual funds in the portfolio, uh, somebody's asleep at the wheel at this point because okay? we're just not seeing any outsized performance from these active managers over a long time period, as we discussed in a in a prior podcast and low cost uh, low cost portfolios in in a lot of patients with. Uh, with the markets is what wins. I'm 98% correct over a 20 year period. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take those odds. (laughs) Exactly. All right, Brad, good conversation. We'll talk to you later. You bet. Thanks for listening to a wiser retirement podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. That way you don't miss any new episodes. We would also appreciate if you could leave a rating and review. If you have any questions about anything that was discussed today, head to wiserinvestor.com and reach out. We would love to hear from you. This episode was produced and edited by Lilton Moore. Wiser Wealth Management Incorporated is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.